2: President Obama launches a new plan for NASA. It boosts the space agency's budget, but looks to the private sector to put people in orbit. Every indication I get is they're not saying, well, let's sell the astronauts'
3: spacesuits. We don't need them anymore. That's not the case. They're just going to do it differently.
2: Also, the president's push for more nuclear power. And the continuing saga of Cape Wind pits new wind power against
4: an ancient cultural practice. It is a threat to our cultural survival. Because if that is built, our children and those that are yet to come will not be able to do this. Those stories and how to talk to some
2: of the animals. This week on Living on Earth, stay with us.
5: Support for Living on Earth
0: comes from the National Science Foundation
2: and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. Houston, you may have a problem. President Obama's NASA budget would scrap the space agency's Constellation program. That $100 billion project to return people to the moon by 2020 was behind schedule and over budget. In announcing Constellation's demise, presidential science advisor John Holdren said the administration still has big plans for NASA.
6: It is not a retreat from U.S. leadership in human spaceflight, as some are asserting, but rather an exciting and promising path forward. In fact, the president would boost
2: NASA's budget by $6 billion over the next five years. But NASA would rely on private companies to put people into space. Keith Cowing is a former NASA engineer who now edits nasawatch.com. Mr. Cowing, is this a giant leap for commercialization of space travel?
3: Well, I've been calling it a paradigm shift. Yes, it is quite a change in the way that NASA uh, wants to do business from the way it's been doing it for the past 30, 40, 50 years. It's imagine it's 1967 and NASA just decided to cancel Apollo. That's about where it is. Except they're saying, wait, we're canceling the program but not the intent. And I think this is a nuance that that's lost in some people when they say, oh, well, we're not going to do human space exploration anymore. Not true. Every indication I get is they're not saying, well, let's sell the astronauts' spacesuits. We don't need them anymore. That's not the case. They're just going to do it differently.
2: Is this uh, akin to the way that we launched uh, commercial air travel?
3: Oh, it is. It's exactly uh, akin to that. You found that uh, back in the olden days, in the teens, and the 20s, that it was uh, carrying airmail that actually subsidized flights that people would say, hey, I can take the mail, but I can take a paying passenger. And if you look at the way that Pan Am pioneered service in the Pacific, they started taking flying boats and hopping from island to island to island. And once the richer patrons had sort of made a, a, a market success for that, other companies came along and said, hey, how about if you don't have champagne and we crowd you in uh, – More closely in the planes and suddenly competition emerged. But it has to start somewhere. Somebody has to prime the pump. Oftentimes it is the government or the richer part of the private sector, sometimes both.
2: So is this going to pave the way for making space travel, A, a commercial venture primarily, and B, uh, more common?
3: Well, it already is commercial. Uh, The
2: funny thing is that the
3: Russians have been taking paying passengers for the better part of a decade now. And I always find great humor in that, that you have a country who's got a capitalist economy that's barely a decade and a half old. And they came out of communism. And yet they're teaching us how to commercialize space. And we've got an economy that's two and a half centuries old based on the capitalistic way of doing things. So this isn't new. It's just it's new to America.
2: So uh, private companies in all likelihood giving us the means to get there, but where's the there? What's the destination?
3: It's not like it's a mystery. It's quite clear that the moon is not out like a lot of people say. It's just that we may not be building giant moon bases there. But it may be that we go to the moon with Europe or Japan. Mars is an obvious destination, as are near-Earth objects, asteroids, and other things. So it's not like NASA doesn't know where it wants to go and hasn't actually put some work into this. It's just that you haven't seen the press release saying, we're going to go here on this date.
2: There were some tantalizing hints about uh Big, game-changing, breakthrough technology that they're going to be uh, looking into here. I didn't hear a lot of detail on that, though. What are they talking about in terms of new technology that's really going to change the way we get to and through space?
3: Well, right now we use rockets, but there are some new technologies that have been tried out. One is ion thrusters, where you, in essence, send out particles at a very high speed using an electrical system, and because they're leaving at such high speed, They're like rockets in that you're throwing something out and F equals MA and all that. But the thing is they're very efficient and they can build up very high thrust and they can be electrically powered. So these ion propulsion is one thing they're looking at. Another thing they're looking at is plasma propulsion and there's this concept called vasimir or vasimir depending who you're talking to. And the beauty of this is it's electrically powered and if, if it works, and it seems to work, much more efficient than taking big tanks full of chemicals up there and then igniting them. That's what's changing.
2: Is there the possibility that uh, these new technologies might end up greening aviation in general?
3: Oh, absolutely. As a matter of fact, if you look at the budget documents, you see that they say aeronautics and green aviation. And one of the things that's very popular these days is looking at you know, biofuels and green aviation fuels. I think you'll see that. And I think you'll see it in a context of a bigger picture. How do you integrate a green aviation mindset into the grander scheme of how the aeronautics and uh, aviation and, and air travel system works in the United States? It's a daunting task.
2: You know, uh, hidden among the the news about the the cuts to these programs, there's also a boost to the overall uh, budget here, a pretty big one, including a sizable increase in uh, earth science programs. Tell me about that.
3: Well, it's not a surprise. I mean, the Obama administration talked very much about the climate and the previous administration poo pooed the notion of global change as being something that we needed to be really concerned about. And NASA's Earth science budget suffered as a result. So that's not a surprise to anybody that this is being brought back. So, yeah, our Earth observation from space, big shot in the arm. The question is, uh, the money being taken for that, where is it coming from? And the space science aspect of NASA is not getting a big increase uh, pretty much as a result.
2: What sounds like you, a former NASA guy, still closely following NASA, think uh, th- this, you're, you're pretty bullish on this idea. You think this is a good direction.
3: Yeah, but, you know, step one, step two, there's a lot of eggshells that have been stomped on here, a lot of sandboxes that have been upset, to use the NASA parlance. And um, there's a lot of people who will beg to differ that this is the right thing to do. And I don't really think you're going to see a clear answer to all of this for many months.
2: Keith Cowing from nasawatch.com telling us about big changes at NASA. Thanks very much. My pleasure. The president's budget also aims to change energy. It would do away with fossil fuel subsidies and put more into clean energy, but the part that's really generating buzz has to do with nuclear energy. President Obama's budget calls for $54 billion in federal loan guarantees, tripling the amount companies could tap into to help build new reactors. Peter Bradford's here to help us put that in perspective. Mr. Bradford does not oppose nuclear power. In fact, as a former member of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, he put his name on the licenses for several reactors. But he does oppose the president's decision.
7: Well, the nuclear industry at the moment is unable to finance construction of any new nuclear plants. Early in the Bush administration, Congress passed legislation providing for tax credits to encourage new nuclear plants and also several years ago provided $18 billion in loan guarantee authority. And for the nuclear industry, things just haven't worked out as intended. Um, A number of companies came forward with applications for a total of 31 new plants they've all run into trouble of one kind or another there have been cost overruns cancellations suspensions delays and in two cases in florida and in texas there have been scandals as well so the nuclear renaissance has not been a great success to date and in that context it seems a little eccentric to be tripling down and saying okay if 18 billion in loan guarantees didn't do it maybe 54 will
2: so you don't think that the the fifty four billion in loan guarantees would be enough to to shake loose the the private investment from Wall Street?
7: Well, no. I mean, loan guarantees aren't a certificate of fiscal health any more than blood transfusions are a certificate of physical health. Uh, you resort to loan guarantees because the enterprise isn't healthy and. The problem with that scenario for nuclear power is that it's, in theory, a mature industry. It's been with us for 50 years. And even though there are some new designs at this point, it really shouldn't be needing this kind of help. The only thing that's going to persuade Wall Street or private investors— would be to have those plants built at competitive prices and to have them run well. And that's a scenario that will take quite a few years to play out. And what do you make of a nuclear
2: power as a uh, climate change solution? That's, that's pretty much how this is being marketed, that this is carbon-free or at least low-carbon source of baseload power. Therefore, it's our path to cutting our carbon emissions.
7: Nuclear power is a low-carbon source, even when you take the full nuclear fuel cycle into account. But it's a very expensive low-carbon source. At least in today's energy markets, it's too expensive to be an effective climate solution. It's as if a homeowner with a leaky roof to their house decided that the solution was to put in a second furnace rather than fix the roof. It takes too much of the money that societies around the world are going to be able to spend fighting climate change and devotes it to a source that just can't respond quickly enough. But it's even more problematic than that. If you look back at what happened, say, in New England with the Seabrook nuclear plant, as companies tried to build these very expensive units and got into trouble, they cut way back on their efforts at energy efficiency, at other sources such even as their own natural gas divisions in order to both husband the resources to finish the plants. And in order to make sure that demand was there for the kilowatt hours at the end of the day. So we know that nuclear power has that ability to displace interests in other resources when it gets into trouble.
2: How does this level of support for for nuclear energy compare to the uh, support that we see for other forms of energy, let's say
7: uh, new wind or new solar? New Wind and New Nuclear are both eligible for production tax credits, but New Nuclear has trouble using them because with a production tax credit, you have to produce something, and the wind people have been able to do that. But with New Nuclear, the concern is that the plants may not come online. I take it from your
2: comments so far, you you don't think it's a good idea in the short view, Uh, but is this a good approach long term to looking to, say, uh, a new generation uh, of reactors many decades hence?
7: Well, what's a defensible approach is perhaps to back a limited number of plants in return for getting cap-and-trade and and then see how those plants perform. What does make sense would be to put a cap-and-trade bill in place, use the... 18.5 or 54 billion, whatever it turns out to be, to find out what new nuclear plants can do. But meanwhile, the cap and trade uh, regime will establish a new energy marketplace in which we'll find out what it really costs to clean up the atmosphere of greenhouse gases and we'll see whether nuclear really has a place.
2: Peter Bradford's a former member of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, now a teacher at the Vermont Law School. Thanks very much.
7: It's been a pleasure.
2: Well, just ahead, trying to chart the right course for offshore wind power. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. For wind energy enthusiasts, Cape Wind in Massachusetts is probably the most famous and frustrating proposal in the U.S. What could be the country's first offshore wind farm has been without a permit for construction for nine years, blocked by those who want to protect the ocean view off Cape Cod. U.S. Interior Department Secretary Ken Salazar wants an end to the delay. He recently boarded a boat to go see the Cape Wind site and hear from both supporters and opponents.
8: We have an imperative to harness uh, the power of the wind. But as I've always said, it's important to do wind energy in, in the right places. And uh, that is the critical question that we're addressing here at, on, on Nantucket Sound. You know, is this uh, the right place for wind energy or is it not?
2: For years, Cape Wind's opposition came from the Cape's most famous part-time residents, the Kennedy clan. But the latest and possibly toughest hurdle comes from the first to inhabit this area, the Native Americans whose ancestors settled Cape Cod and the islands thousands of years ago. The Wind puts on a show the day I visit Martha's Vineyard, with gusts whipping the sound's waters into white caps. But my
4: guide, Bettina Washington, is not too bothered. It's a little windy today, a little cold, but beautiful and sunny, so that's good. The sun is Washington's
2: concern here, specifically the rising sun. Washington is Historic Preservation Officer for the wampanoag Aquina tribe, based on the island. If Cape Wind's 130 turbines go up, as planned, about nine miles from this beach, it would affect the view of the rising sun. Washington explains that greeting the dawn is
4: at the core of Wampanoag culture. Our name is the Wampanoag, which means people of the first light or the dawn. It's our identity. It gives us a sense of place, where we belong. It's how other tribes relate to us. So this place is very special to us.
2: We huddle on the leeward side of a wall, and Washington tells me some stories from the tribe's oral history. Most feature Moshap, a giant who caught whales to feed the people. In another story, it's Moshup who causes the
4: waters to rise and fill Nantucket Sound. When Moshup brought us here, he came here and he dragged his foot and created the sound. That's how the waters came in. The legend has echoes in archaeological records that show
2: the Wampanoag have been here so long that land they once lived on is now submerged. Horseshoe Shoal, now under 50 feet of water, is one of the likely spots of early
4: Wampanoag activity. It's also where Cape Wind's towers would be anchored. Our oral history says we walked across here. So we would have been traveling across here, living here, making our livelihoods here, and also burying our people here. When you're talking in excess of 10,000 years, you know, that's a long time. So what would it
2: mean if you came to this beach and along with the rising sun you saw uh, wind turbines out there?
4: It it would definitely be a disturbance because if that is built, our children and those that are yet to come will not be able to do this. It's like a sense of uh, a type of extinction of a cultural practice. About four years ago, the
2: Wampanoag of Akina and nearby Mashpee argued that the sound itself has cultural significance to the tribes. In an unusual decision this year, the National Park Service's keeper of the National Register of Historic Places agreed. The keeper made 560 square miles of Nantucket Sound eligible for listing in the National Register, a first for an open body of water. Cape Wind president Jim Gordon says that decision should not be allowed to further delay his project,
5: which he started developing back in 2000. We thought that the development would take three or four years. This has been a tough, tough slog. Gordon also
2: tells me a story about rising waters and avoiding them. He says polls show 80 percent of Massachusetts residents support the project, largely because they want clean energy to combat the threats
5: of climate change. I'm talking about our beaches eroding away. I'm talking about more uh, frequent and increased hurricane and storms, warming of the ocean, ocean acidification. Cape Wind really is about preserving and enhancing the environment of Cape Cod and providing a healthier environment for the citizens that live in that fragile coastal community.
2: If Cape Wind were operating today, what would it mean in terms of uh, greenhouse gas emissions offset?
5: Well, you're looking at my iPhone, and that's dialed right into our solar-powered meteorological station. Right now, Cape Wind would be producing 422 megawatts of clean, renewable power. That would be enough to power almost 400,000 homes. And we would be offsetting almost one million tons of greenhouse gases annually. Cape Wind would provide about
2: 2 percent of the state's electricity. But Ian Bowles says it represents more than that. Bowles is Secretary of Energy and Environmental Affairs for Massachusetts. He hopes Cape Wind would jumpstart other wind projects that would eventually meet a quarter of the state's power needs.
8: Well, you know, it has a symbolic importance at the national level. It's probably the most high profile renewable energy project in the world at this stage and, um, uh, something being closely followed. And I think many observers view that if we can't move forward with projects like this, we have problems in terms of making the trade-offs and the choices we need to make for renewable power.
2: Even with its controversy, Cape Wind has pushed along federal and state rules and planning for offshore wind. Lori Jodzwitz of the American Wind Energy Association says that means other projects should have an easier path, regardless of Cape Wind's
9: fate. I would say if it doesn't happen, there's tremendous momentum behind all of these other offshore projects. And so while we'd all like to see the Cape Wind project be successful... It certainly isn't a make-or-break issue or make-or-break project for the offshore wind industry as a whole.
2: Johnswitz says projects in Delaware, New Jersey, and Rhode Island look strong. Massachusetts will know soon if Cape Wind could still be the first in the water. Interior Secretary Salazar has set a deadline of March 1st for the parties to reach a consensus agreement. But after his trip to Nantucket Sound, the secretary did not sound especially hopeful.
8: You know, this project has been underway for a very long time. And uh, there are passionate feelings on, on both sides. And so I'm not holding my breath for a, for a consensus.
2: If there's no agreement, Salazar says he will make a decision on the permit himself by April. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency is telling electric utility companies to dispose of coal ash more safely. Most of the waste from burning coal in power plants is dumped in landfills or behind the dams of slurry ponds called impoundments, with little government oversight. About a year ago, one of those dams in Tennessee burst, spilling a billion gallons of waste into the Emory River. At the time, local resident Sarah McCoyne described the sludge that inundated dozens of homes close to the power plant.
0: Charcoal gray, gooey, nasty, gummy. Looks like the inside of a volcano that has just been active. And it goes as far as the eye can see. It's a very sick feeling. It, It certainly brings a tear to your eye. And then, obviously, I'm worried about my health. My health, my family's health, the health of my friends and neighbors.
2: Well, in the wake of the spill, EPA promised action. This month, EPA told 22 power plants to strengthen their ash impoundments to avoid further spills. But EPA still has to decide how to regulate the ash itself. The agency's self-imposed deadline for new rules passed a month ago, and White House officials are still debating. Coal ash often contains arsenic, lead, mercury, and other toxics, and that's why many scientists urge EPA to declare coal ash a hazardous material. Some industry groups say that could make it harder to recycle the ash. We'll hear from both, starting with Thomas Adams. He's executive director of the American Coal Ash Association, whose members turn ash into
8: useful products. Well, probably the marquee uh, product would be fly ash, which is used in uh, concrete uh, as a partial supplement replacement for Portland cement. gives us a a dramatic increase in durability of concrete. Another one that is uh, all around us is a material called boiler slag, which is used as the grit in shingles for roofing shingles. Uh, Approximately 80% of the residential roofs in this country uh, use shingles which incorporate boiler slag. The production of uh, cement is uh, pretty
2: energy intensive and, uh, you know, they produce a lot of uh, CO2 emissions. If you're stretching out the the cement, uh, improving it with this ash, are you saving energy and reducing emissions as well?
8: Absolutely. Uh, If you look at the use of fly ash as a partial replacement for Portland cement, you're looking at a ratio of about uh, nine-tenths of a ton of CO2 avoidance for every ton of cement reduction that you can, you can identify. And how much coal ash gets used this way? Annually, in our most recent survey, we had 136 million tons of coal ash produced, of which 44% was recycled into a variety of different uh, applications. So that's 44% of the
2: total coal ash produced in the country?
8: Yes, uh, and that's by electric-fired coal utilities. There are other ash producers which come from industrial boilers, which include private industry that has their own uh, boiler for utility purposes on their own sites, and uh, universities and, and other institutions like that. That's not included in that 136 million tons.
2: So now what is your concern about the pending regulatory decision on how to handle coal ash?
8: We're focusing on on trying to keep this uh, success story of recycling this material moving forward and not have it uh, go backwards by any stigmatization of this material as being hazardous. Certainly when we have a choice of uh, selecting products as consumers, uh, if we take a look at a a hazardous product uh, as identified by some label uh, by the federal government, versus a non-hazardous label, uh, we certainly want to select a non-hazardous label as consumers uh, would. And we feel that if we have a hazardous determination of any kind come out of EPA, that that stigma will be attached to these products uh, and and cause the recycling effort to retreat and in some cases almost stop. And we've seen market impact already that uh, some people are moving in that direction.
2: However, I mean, don't we recycle and reuse a lot of things that are uh, rightly and officially considered uh, toxic? I mean, I just look at my car and I think about the reuse of old batteries, uh, the recycling reuse of motor oil. These are things that contain substances that are hazardous if improperly disposed of, but that doesn't keep us from having a robust system for reuse and, and recycling.
8: Absolutely, and that's uh, those are success stories by themselves. But if you look at the used oil example, the used oil is reprocessed and then incorporated again into another finished product, which is primarily used in an industrial setting, whereas our product is not reprocessed and is put into a commercial residential setting by and large, and the public is very, very close to that.
2: But aren't you essentially telling people to ignore the fact here?
8: I mean, ash is toxic. If it's mismanaged, it can have some effect on health and environment. The key point to remember is these materials are are harmful when there's an opportunity for ingestion. If we're putting them into an environment which uh, does not allow ingestion or has a very low probability of ingestion, then you can, uh, I think, safely assume that we're, we're not really dealing with a dangerous situation.
2: Thomas Adams, Executive Director of the American Coal Ash Association. Thanks. Thank you for having me. Well, Mr. Adams is at odds with some scientists who have studied coal ash disposal sites for decades. Wake Forest University research biology professor Dennis Limley says recycling ash is a fine idea, but it's not really the point here. Limley says the pending decision on how to regulate coal ash should be driven by data. He and his colleagues wrote to the White House to set the record straight about coal ash toxicity.
6: With respect to the health of fish and wildlife, there's no question that coal combustion waste is a highly hazardous substance. Uh, The Gibson Coal Plant in Indiana polluted an entire wildlife refuge. Uh, The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is now involved in a major cleanup of that site. The Savannah River site in South Carolina contaminated wetlands and deformed amphibians for miles downstream. The Coal Strip Plant in Montana and many other facilities have contaminated off-site groundwater in addition to surface water. And experience shows that really the only way to effectively control this material is to place it with a hazardous waste designation. What are the implications for human health? Well, in terms of you know the leaching of these materials into groundwater and contamination of uh, public water supplies, there are several well-known cases of that that have taken place where the electric utilities have had to bring in uh, bottled water and provide alternative water supplies for uh, local residents. So we're seeing that, you know, there are very clear case examples of uh, situations where human health has been directly impacted by uh, the disposal of these wastes.
2: Give us a sense of uh, the scale of the waste that we're talking about.
6: Well, it is a national issue. For example, across the country there are literally hundreds of sites that uh are at least active at this point, and there are several you know inactive sites as well, so if you look at the total number of coal combustion disposal sites across the country it 's well over two thousand
2: so so this stuff is uh highly hazardous in your opinion. There are these sites all over the country uh surely we're we 're regulating this stuff right.
6: The current regulations are kind of a patchwork. They're left primarily up to the states, and uh, the level of control uh, for these materials and the way they're disposed is highly variable from state to state. For example, there are a couple states, for example California, that require uh, more stringent regulations. Many other states have very lax rules in terms of how the material can be disposed, and uh, what uh, requirements there are for liners and uh, leachate collection and that kind of thing. So it is really a patchwork, and uh, that's one reason why there's a need for federal oversight, because the uh, state uh, regulations are so variable and uh, so inadequate in many cases. And
2: the big argument here, though, let's face it, is cost. I mean, isn't it going to end up simply costing too much to do the, the kind of protective measures you're recommending here?
6: Well, in fact, if uh, you look at the cost, I would maintain that the cost of the unregulation that exists now is out of control and even more expensive than the cost of a hazardous waste designation and disposal of the material under that type of uh, requirement. For example, just a year ago, the uh, ash spill at the TVA Kingston plant, cleanup cost for that one episode alone is going to be over a billion dollars. And we can look at other locations where cleanup costs are in the millions for every single case of contamination. So if you look at it on a national scale, over a period of time, the total cost of no action uh, and the cleanup associated with that is going to be much greater than the cost of a hazardous waste designation and proper management and prevention of future contamination problems and cleanup costs.
2: Do you see this as a a test of uh, the Obama administration's uh,
6: commitment to science? Oh, I think it is. I think it's very clearly going to be perhaps a test case in terms of using science to guide policy because the science is there. It's very clear. It's not ambiguous. It's been there starting 30 years ago. We have compiled a tremendous case-by-case information base and database uh, on which to, uh, to base the decision, the policy decision.
2: Wake Forest University biology professor Dennis Lemley, thanks very much.
6: You're welcome, and thank you very much for having me.
2: And you can learn more about coal ash and read EPA's assessment of where the most potentially hazardous impoundments are at our website, LOE.org. Coming
9: up, the scientific approach to scaring a bear. Everyone has a story of a bear getting their food. So if you imagine a million people all letting a bear get their food once, you know, you've got a problem. A biologist on the best way to avoid those problems and what
2: I did wrong in my bear encounter. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment, and from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. Time now for comments from you. Our coverage of the climate and energy proposals in the State of the Union speech generated both heat and light. Some listeners support the president's call for more nuclear power and offshore drilling. But many more say Friends of the Earth got it right calling the president's speech a kick in the gut. Yes, I do feel that way, writes Laurie Larson, who hears our podcast in Trenton, New Jersey. Nuclear energy is not clean, she writes, until there is a way to safely deal with the waste. And it is vastly expensive. Resources should instead go to R&D for really clean energy. Kel Pickens of Stillwater, Oklahoma, hears us on KOSU. He echoes that call for investment in renewable energy.
8: When will Obama learn to just do it? He may be surprised how many of us are behind him. But by supporting and backing nukes, he may be responsible for setting off
2: new waves of anti-nuclear protests and legal actions that will make the last resistance
7: to nukes look like a warm-up.
2: Our interview with Mark Levy of the Haiti Regeneration Initiative in the wake of the earthquake sparked many appreciative comments, including one from Colleen Mildens, who hears us on WNJT near Princeton. She writes, a sustainable environment is essential for Haiti. I, and I'm sure many others, would be willing to support vegetation restoration and reforestation projects for the Haitian people. WBEZ Chicago listener Stacia Orange took issue with our interview, though. She thought we glossed over the responsibility of Haiti's colonial rulers for the environmental degradation the people currently face. No
5: comments were made about how they were forced by the French to pay for the robbing of the wood, the trees, for furniture and other resources. They did not voluntarily get rid of their resources. They were robbed of it. Haiti is in this situation because of its treatment by Western countries.
2: Well, whether you want to give us a sweet pat on the back or a swift kick somewhere else, we're always glad to hear from you. Our listener line is 800-218-9988 and that's 800-218-9988 or email us at comments at dot org. The giant trees of Sequoia National Park in California attract nearly a million visitors each year. All those people, and their picnic baskets, also attract a lot of black bears. Last year alone, the park reported over 100 human-bear conflicts. So park officials wanted to know how to reduce those risky wildlife encounters. Bear biologist Rachel Mazur has been working on the problem and published a study on how best to scare a bear.
9: Basically, I've been working at Sequoia and Kings Canyon National Parks, where we have massive numbers of human-black bear conflicts, as they do in many other parts of the country and other parts of the world. And we're looking for solutions. And using hazing or aversive conditioning on these bears is something we've been doing, but we didn't know how well it was working. Aversive conditioning, what what are
2: we talking about here? Is it trying to
9: scare them? Yes, in a way. I mean, basically what you're doing is trying to retrain behavior. And so you're trying to make them associate something negative with what they thought was something positive so where they would go in to a campground or go into a car or something to receive human food we want them to think of that as something they don't want to do so what kind of things are you doing here what are we talking about actually the most common one is really just yelling at bears you know get out of here bear waving your arms looking big um (laughs) (laughs) really and, and, and how does that work Um, It works pretty well on naive bears, or, you know, we call them naive bears, but bears that aren't very food-conditioned, used to human food, or very habituated. But then there's other methods that are much more intense, using pepper spray, using paintball guns, using uh, rubber slugs, which are basically the rubber bullets you think of with kind of riot teams or something like that. And how do those techniques work? Um, They're mixed. So on naive bears they work great. They work great in saying, don't come into these areas, this is not a good place for you, you know, you want to go back and eat acorns and eat berries and that sort of thing. With bears that have already received a lot of human food and are used to entering human areas, they're not very successful. They will, however, keep bears away from humans, increase their fear of humans, and make them change their techniques for getting human food. So instead of coming in boldly in the middle of the day and walking up to a picnic table, they might sneak in at night ...and grab a cooler that's hidden behind a tree.
2: So at least you're you're reducing the, the chance of something really bad happening. They're, they're still going to raid the trash can occasionally, that sort of thing, but...
9: Exactly. In terms of, you know, rewilding them, or however you want to phrase it, the success rate's pretty low. You
2: know, I, I find this very interesting in part because a couple summers ago I had a bear encounter of my own. And I tried to scare that bear, or so I thought, and i got to tell you, the bear was not impressed... And he did what I think you call a bluff charge. And okay. um, I ran away. I may have screamed like a little girl, but let's just say uh, I did not succeed in scaring the bear. What did I do wrong and what should I have done in, in that situation?
9: <laughs> uh, well, first of all, you never run from a bear. Um, because okay, so there's strike one against me. you. should not
2: have run. Sc- screaming like a little girl, probably not good either.
9: as a side note the gender and size have nothing to do with it Um, but what people do a lot is a bear will come into their campground and they'll say you know get out of here bear and they get all excited and go running after the bear and they leave their food on the picnic table so you know we say it's great to yell it's great to you know try to make them afraid of you but put your food away (laughs) that's the most important thing
2: well, you know, it sounds to me like uh, what you're really after is not so much changing bear behavior, but, but changing people behavior.
9: Exactly. It's way easier to just put your food away to begin with than creating this problem and trying to fix it. And so if you're in one of these parks where you have a million visitors in a place like Yosemite, several million visitors coming in a year, you have a lot of people to train. Sometimes when you talk to people, everyone has a story of a bear getting their food. So if you imagine a million people all letting a bear get their food once you know, you've got a problem. And so there's constant education of people on, you know, holding your food, how to be around bears, giving them space. You know, we don't want people near bears. They should be 50 meters away from bears. People like to say, oh, I could get really close and get a good photograph. Well, instead, get a telephoto lens, you know, stay away from them. What you're doing, the closer you're getting to them is you're habituating them or, or muting their response to humans.
2: I guess that's something that that a lot of visitors to parks uh, need to keep in mind. Is uh, it may seem harmless to throw a marshmallow to a bear, and oh, isn't it cute? But uh, in the long term, you, you may doom that animal because if it becomes a uh, regular there, park managers may have no choice but to kill the animal. Right?
9: That's true. And I think a lot of times the people who first gave food to the bear, you know, are long gone by the time the bear's behavior is so. I guess you'd say risky, that you need to take its life. And so near the end of a bear's life, the people that have left their food out, they might have just left out a candy wrapper or something small. And so they feel horribly guilty, but it was really the person, you know, three months earlier that had left a cooler unattended while they went to the bathroom that really caused the problem.
2: Did you ever feel like uh, the ranger in a Yogi Bear cartoon during all this?
7: Ooh, that yogi!
9: (laughs) (laughs) You often feel, yeah... They would sneak. You'd be looking for them. We'd spotlight around, you know, where are the bears looking around? And they'd be hiding behind the dumpster, but their butt would be sticking out one end so you could see them.
10: (laughs) (laughs) She's it! Here comes the ranger!
2: (laughs) Bear biologist Rachel Mazer telling us about the best ways to scare bears. Thanks very much. Thank you. Just ahead, how whistling while you work can turn you into an expert birder.
0: But first, this cool fix for a hot planet from Emily Garrett. On opening day in April, the Minnesota Twins are hoping to hit a grand slam in sustainable design with their new stadium, Target Field. The stadium underwent a $2.5 million redesign to make it eligible for LEED certification, the U.S. Green Building Council's rating of a building's environmental impact. Target Field has a number of environmentally friendly features already. It was built on an existing site, is close to public transportation, and was constructed with local building materials. But to really hit the ball out of the park, the Twins are installing a gigantic rainwater collection system beneath the field. Rain that falls on the seven-acre park will drain into a school bus-sized underground tank designed by a Minneapolis company called Pentair. The water will be filtered and reused to irrigate the field and wash the lower decks of the stadium. The Twins hope this system will cut their water needs in half, reducing consumption by 2 million gallons per year. Pentair will also provide water filters in offices and team areas to promote tap water and reduce the use of plastic water bottles. If the Green Building Council approves the park, the Twins will become the second Major League Baseball team with a LEED-certified stadium, but the only one with a winning record. The other green part belongs to the Washington Nationals, who finished the 2009 season with the worst record in baseball. That's this week's Cool Fix for a Hot Planet. I'm Emily Guerin. And if you
2: have a Cool Fix for a Hot Planet, we'd like to know it. If we use your idea on the air, we'll send you a sleek electric blue living-on-Earth tire gauge. Keeping your tires properly inflated can save hundreds of dollars a year in fuel. Email us at coolfix, that's one word, coolfix, at loe.org. Bird watching as a hobby dates back to the late 1800s, when studying birds for their looks and behavior became more fashionable than hunting them for food. These days, advances in technology have revolutionized birding, from high-tech binoculars to smartphone apps that can play recordings of bird songs to try to lure them in. But some birders have their own special ways to attract our feathered friends. Producer and naturalist Laurie Sanders has this profile.
1: Hear those tree sparrows? Well, actually, those aren't real tree sparrows. It's Patrick Dugan.
10: There's one, two, three, four, five, six of them? Six of them came in.
4: Six of them came in? It works. He uh, did tree sparrow, and six of them popped up out of the bush and came over to us. (laughs) It's like having a tape recorder. Just walk along and push play.
1: On this windy day, Patrick Dugan and his friend Frank Gallo are birding along the edge of a small patch of woods at Lighthouse Point in New Haven, Connecticut. Patrick Dugan is a phenomenon. He has perfect pitch, and during his 20 years of birding, he's memorized more than 1,000 bird songs and can now imitate well over 100 songs and call notes. He and Gallo routinely lead birding trips together, and over the years, they've participated in dozens of bird counts, including the World Series of Birding in New Jersey, where the goal is to find as many species as possible in a 24-hour period. At these events, Gallo says, Dugan's uncanny skills are a huge advantage. The more tuned your ear
4: is, and Pat has an amazing ear, the more species you can count. So you you have to practice and practice and practice. And his ability to reproduce chip notes, both as a reminder to himself but also and on some occasion he actually can get the birds to call back to him. So he'll chip into, the, into a bush where we think we saw a white-crowned sparrow and it'll pop up and chip back
1: at him. Dugan's interest in birds began in his early 20s when his brother took him bird-watching. After seeing a scarlet tanager, he was hooked. What appealed to him was the challenge of finding and identifying birds, especially the trickier groups like gulls and shorebirds, sparrows and flycatchers, species that visually resemble each other but can often be more easily separated by their songs and call notes. And so Dugan, who was a precocious whistler, beginning when he was just a toddler, began trying to imitate the sounds he was hearing.
10: Well, start basically by whistling. Start with that. Then set releasing and pressuring the lips. That's all different movements of the lips.
1: And then he says you start moving your tongue back and forth and working on controlling the air pressure as it moves between your teeth.
10: All depends on the tones and that I do it in. You know, the speed that I do it in. Um, you know, or slower. Or depends on the birds, uh, you know, if they had the buzzy, like prairie rover, or a black tortoise blue, or a black tortoise green.
1: For much of his adult life, Dugan was able to practice his whistling at his job. For years, he was a picture framer, working alone in the shop's basement, where he listened to recorded bird songs and practiced imitating them. And he practiced and practiced. The most complex song he whistles is that of the winter wren, which took him over six months to perfect.
4: (laughs) It makes me smile every time.
1: (laughs) A few years ago, Dugan's remarkable ability came to the attention of Woody Allen, who asked him to audition for the talent show scene in the movie Sweet and Low Down*, featuring Sean Penn.
10: I went in, they filmed me, Woody Allen said, here, stand here, do three bird calls, do the name, then the calls. When I say action, go. So I did. I did Scarlet Tanager, White-Throated Sparrow, and Barred Owl. I was there for about 13 hours or so. And then they cut me, and apparently they wanted somebody more funny.
4: Yeah, tell them the real reason. The real reason was he was just too good, and, and Sean Penn was supposed to win the talent contest and wouldn't have won had he actually competed against Patrick, so they had to cut him.
1: To get out of the wind, we duck into Dugan's car, and I ask him to whistle. And taking a breath, he begins his repertoire. <laughs> For Living on Earth, I'm Laurie Sanders.
2: the next living on earth in california's struggling central valley a group of women organized to fight pollution
4: they tell us you know what we used to think you were crazy (laughs) but now i'm so angry and you know i want them to hear me and i want them to listen and they don't
1: i said well welcome to the fight
2: activism where the streets aren't paved next time on living on earth Well, we leave you this week on a Caribbean island. In Les Pitons du Carbet, the volcanic mountains in northern Martinique, thousands of small frogs emerge from the lush rainforest as night falls. Recordist Jean Rocher captured this amphibian philharmonia. It's from his CD, American Forests and Lakes. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Bolinsky, Bruce Gellerman, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Jessica Elise Smith, Ike Shrishkanjaraja, and Mitra Taj, with help from Sarah Calkins, Marilyn Gavoni, and Sammy Souza. Our interns are Emily Guerin and Bridget McDonald. We had engineering help this week from Dana Chisholm. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Learish-Dean composed our themes. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. I'm Jeff Young. Thanks for listening.
5: Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm. Organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners. The Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues. And Pax World Mutual Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making.